We all know the world of energy and natural resources is changing fast. People are demanding action on the climate crisis. Businesses and politicians are throwing their weight behind the energy transition. And technology is reshaping the world as we know it. But we must ensure the result doesn't become too complex and too confusing. That's where the Climate Transition Podcast comes in. In this series, DLA Piper's Energy and Natural Resources team speaks to special guests to help you make sense of it all. My name is Natasha Luther-Jones. I'm the global co-chair of the Energy and Natural Resources sector here at DLA Piper. I'm also co-head of our International Sustainability and ESG offering. And I am your host for the series. Today we ask, can we decarbonise international shipping by 2050? The shipping industry is the backbone of global trade. The United Nations estimates that 80% of the volume of international trade in goods travels by sea. However, shipping also has a huge impact when it comes to carbon emissions. The International Maritime Organization estimates it's responsible for emitting 940 million tonnes of carbon dioxide annually. And it's warned that this could grow by between 50% and 250% by 2050. Clearly, this is a really serious challenge for the energy transition. How difficult is it to make international shipping greener? What can be done today by businesses and governments? And will renewable energy prove part of the solution? To help me answer these, I'm delighted today to be joined by Ragnar Visloff, Senior Vice President of Clean Energy at Herg LNG. The company was founded in 1973 and has for the last 50 years been a leading player in the use of LNG in the maritime sector, rather than heavy fuel oils. Ragnar, welcome. Thank you. So if we could kick it off with a little bit of background, Ragnar, um, this is the first podcast on the climate transition that we've looked at this area, and it might not be something that the listeners are familiar with. So give us a little bit of background about yourself. How long have you been working at Herg LNG? Uh, I've been with the company for a little over 16 years now. Previous uh, to that, uh, I have spent quite a bit of time uh, in the natural gas sector, upstream, midstream, and downstream. Uh, By training, I am a naval architect. So I think when we were talking before the podcast, you also mentioned that you were a transition project leader for Herg LNG shipping fleet. Is that right? That's correct. So what does a transition project leader do then, please? Um, So my focus uh, in this uh, position and this uh, role has been to identify where we can support the transition uh, to low low carbon energy supply generally um, through the use of uh, of floating infrastructure. Uh, establishing such infrastructure is what we have done for LNG and natural gas over the years. Uh, and this knowledge and experience can be applied uh, to the needs of uh, many of the new energy carriers as well. Uh, there is another side of uh, decarbonisation of shipping, which has to do with the actual operations of the ships themselves. 
um, and uh, that has been part of uh, of the the job as well, um, but not with the same focus. But that will be a focus for many ship owners and many ship operators, uh, and that's one of the areas we can help them with. Okay, thank you. So um, you're 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 working now under in Herg LNG. Um, do you consider the company to be an LNG pioneer, given how long you've been in the space? Yes, we've uh, we've operated LNG vessels for more than fifty years. So so yes, I think we we will consider ourselves to be uh, a bit of a pioneer. Uh, we did uh, quite a bit of innovation in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies with traditional LNG tankers. Um, and then again, uh, in the 2000s, uh, we moved to floating storage and regasification units uh, known as FSIUs. Um, and this was a game changer in bringing LNG to new markets uh, with the deployment of these uh, new types of terminals being quicker and cheaper and much more flexible. Um, and the lessons learned from, from marketing, financing, execution of these terminal projects directly applicable to, for instance, terminals that will handle ammonia or methanol or hydrogen as new energy carriers. So we often hear about LNG being the transition fuel, and it, it is in many ways. Um, it really does help companies take that first step. Why isn't it more widely used in the maritime sector then? That's a good question, Natasha. Um, it, it has to do with uh, change uh, in both uh, technology and operations um, and a lack of both uh, distribution systems and available usage technology. And that's a difficult word for uh, engines and bunker tanks and uh, fuel supply systems and, and that sort of thing. Um, it has really not been available until now. Um, and it's difficult and expensive to modify existing ships. Um, so that has been uh, a bit of a barrier to take up as well. Um, and just generally the fact that change takes time. It certainly does, although we don't have time, do we? So um, what? how big is this challenge um, for decarbonizing the shipping industry then? You, you say it's really expensive, change is difficult. Um, it feels to me that this is a massive challenge, but give me your view, please. It's indeed a huge challenge. Um, but I do see uh, three major areas or steps that we need to utilize to get there. First, it's a regulatory and policy support question, and that's something that uh, the politicians will uh, have to organize. Then it's access to capital because uh, shipbuilding is expensive and uh, they are uh, they last for a long time, but you, you need to pay for them up front. Um, and then it's stakeholder engagement. Um, and uh, all of these are, are quite important uh, outside elements that need to be managed uh, in order to bring about the, the transition. So do you think there's a few things we could probably unpack there? Um, as you mentioned, there's a, a, it's clearly not, uh, there's not one solution that meets that challenge. Um, so maybe if we pick up first of all, um, do you think the regulators and politicians are aware of what they can do and what they need to do? Yes, I do. Uh, and they do react. Uh, but politicians and regulators typically have a number of different aspects 
uh, and interests and factors uh, that they need to weigh up against another. So business and industry needs, jobs, incomes, that can be one set of, of factors that they need to take into account. And in many parts of the world, um, actually looking at the um, environmental aspects is sometimes seen as a bit of a luxury, uh, which will take uh, second seats uh, to some of these other aspects. So in addition to that, regulating shipping is uh, by its nature difficult because the ships move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, they spend a lot of time on the high seas and no national rules or regulations or laws will apply to a ship uh, which moves in, in, in such a way. Um, that means that organizations such as the uh, IMO, which you already mentioned, uh, which is part of the United Nations system, uh, has a major role to play. Yeah, it sounds uh, it's not an easy one to solve that. Um, but is technology an easier challenge to solve? Um, so, you know, how can can ships be ready now for what they need to do? And is it just a case of, I don't know, retrofitting older ships? What What's the answer on the, the technology? Well, I think as so many other parts of the energy transition, uh, there's not a single answer. There's There's going to be uh, a number of solutions that need to be brought into play. Um, and uh, the diversified solutions will probably be um, the name of the game. So you could have, for instance, uh, long distance shipping taking on one set of technologies, and that could be totally decarbonized fuels such as ammonia or methanol um, or even hydrogen, uh, which can be taken on board. And when they when they burn, and propel the ship, they will have no uh, carbon uh, emissions. Um, in the case of methanol, uh, it needs to be uh, produced from uh, a circular carbon uh, source. Um, now, the issue is that much of this technology is not yet available. It's not too far away, it's just a few years away. Um, so today, a ship owner wanting to design and order a new ship um, might have to literally uh, be prepared to move in a transitionary transitionary uh, way and accept the fact that some of the technology in use will have to have a certain life with current technology and then it can move on with some modifications. You, you mentioned uh, modifying uh, the technology uh, and then uh, become a true green uh, technology in a few years' time, uh, when, for instance, the availability of these fuels uh, will be more uh, more ubiquitous. Sounds quite um, capital intensive, uh, allowing for all these different technologies. Is there capital available for shipping companies to have this flexibility and make the changes they need? Yes. Um, that the uh, the capital is available, and uh, banks and uh, other financing institutions have taken uh, decarbonisation seriously uh, by establishing something called uh, the Poseidon Principles, um, and uh, these principles have three uh, mainstays. Um, they uh, require the the banks or the institution to assess, then monitor 
and then report transparently on how well the shipping portfolio uh, aligns with the IMO uh, decarbonization goals. Um, and this has the effect of uh, encouraging ship owners to access cheaper sources of capital in order to invest in uh, shipping, which will allow the decarbonization to take place. Great. Well, that's good to hear. Um, what I'd like to explore a little bit more is how much pressure is being put um, on the shipping industry. Clearly, shipping will make up parts of supply chains for many, many corporates. And as all these global corporates sign up to reducing carbon emissions uh, on their net zero journey, they'll be looking at how they can reduce their scope three emissions, uh, which is their supply chain, which the shipping industry will make part of. Um, um, so what sort of pressure is coming from customers or also, I suppose, shareholders as well on the sector? It's uh, starting to become noticeable uh, in, in certain areas. Um, for instance, uh, we have uh, a sister shipping company called Herg Autoliners, uh, which, as the name suggests, uh, moves cars from continent to continent. Uh, and of course, with uh, the um with the build up in in uh, EVs uh produced in one part of the world and being sold in another part of the world uh the the car car companies the car producers want to be able to show that the entire delivery chain is actually carbon free so they have um an order in place now uh for ships which when they are delivered in 2024 and 2025, will be capable of running on carbon-free fuels. Uh, so this is just an example of how this uh, this pressure uh, is brought about. So they needed to respond to that, and, and they have done through technology. Maybe we could explore that a little bit more then, the, the, the technology that is needed for carbon-free fuels. I think you mentioned earlier the use of hydrogen, um, the use of ammonia. Um, how, what sort of role are they playing now and are, are they going to be essential then in the decarbonisation of the maritime sector? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, the the end, uh, end game, if you like, here for shipping will be ships running on carbon-free fuels. That means that they can take on bunker fuels, which uh, by production and by their nature uh, will not emit any carbon when they are being used. And, uh, and ammonia and uh, hydrogen are examples of that. Uh, parts of the shipping fleet, which is very near the coast, uh, for instance, ferries, uh, traffic, you know, uh, moving cars across the fjords in Norway, um, they are already electrified. So they can run on batteries across the fjord. Uh, they can charge the other end and then run back. Um, so electricity will be part of it. Hydrogen uh, is going to run regional fleets across the North Sea, across the Baltics. Um, and then for the long distance shipping, you uh, will have to utilize uh, new technology, which is probably a little further ahead, and that is ammonia and possibly methanol, uh, which are the only energy carriers you can take on board in large enough quantities to run a ship for six weeks, eight weeks, three months at a time. It sounds we've got some exciting um, technologies and fuel use ahead of us then. That's good to hear. Um, 
sometimes seen as a slightly more boring part of decarbonisation and net zero, um, and that's energy efficiency. And, and, and sometimes we do struggle with that, you know, in terms in in many different aspects of the energy transition. Does energy efficiency have a part to play here in this sector? Yes, of course it does, uh, as it does in in many other. Uh, parts of uh, of energy usage, uh, making sure that uh, the efficiency is the highest you can get, is a very good way uh, of reducing the overall energy use. Um, and uh, there are many things that a ship ownership operator can do. Um, you can design your ship so that they have the least possible resistance. You can make sure that the uh, the underwater part of the ship uh, is clean. Um, and that has to do with the resistance uh, of uh, of unclean surfaces. Um, you can reduce the speed with with which uh, the ship runs, um, as uh, any naval architect will tell you. Uh, the resistance of the ship will uh, increase uh, um, uh, quite a lot with increased speed. And of course, if you reduce speeds, um, the uh, amount of fuel you use will also go down. And with the fuel use, you also have uh, a reduction in emissions. So that is probably the most used uh, energy efficiency method today, reducing speed. Um, you have the size of the ship, the larger the ships can be, the more transport they can, or the more cargo they can transport. Uh, you have alternative routes you have a lot of digitalization you can use uh, by optimizing which routes ships will take so that they don't uh, run into head seas with strong winds and storms and that sort of thing. Um, and also to make sure that you've run the ship when it comes to the engines, uh, for instance, in the most optimal way. So there are many, many aspects which maybe each of them will not have a huge impact, but if you use all of them, uh, together, they they will have quite a bit of impact. It feels like there's going to be um, quite a lot of stakeholder engagement needed in those decisions. So, as you said, you know, you can uh, the ships can go more slowly. Um, so, you're going to need to engage with customers, presumably. So, there's maybe a slight trade off to be had. You know, if corporates want their supply chain to be fully decarbonized, then you know, it might take a little bit longer for them to get um, what they need to, to get in their supply chain. Is that a, a fair comment? It is, absolutely. Um, but maybe it sounds worse than what it is. If a ship from Shanghai to, to Northern Europe takes eight weeks rather than six, uh, maybe uh, that is um, a price which is worth paying uh, to reduce the emissions by half. Yeah, it certainly is. And if you talk to anyone in um, the solar industry, um, they're suffering from more delays than that currently. Um, OK, so look, I think we've tackled um, energy efficiency. I think we've tackled uh, the new fuels that can be used. Just before we sort of look to wrapping up, are there any other new technologies that we um, should see coming through into the maritime industry? Yes, Um the in, the maritime industry, although it is quite conservative, has also shown to be innovative, uh, particularly when it comes to propulsion technology. Um, and we're seeing actually, quite interestingly, um, that um, sail power or wind power is coming back. Um, maybe not with the majestic full riggers that we used to see going around Cape Horn in, in spectacular fashion, 
but you have new um, types of rotary sails which can be placed on board ships and which can be um, which can be taken down for passing under bridges and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, and these technologies will allow you to save 20, 30 percent uh, of uh, the emissions. Uh, and then used together with uh, slower steaming, with making sure that you have an efficient ship, you can reduce uh, your fuel use by 50, 60%. Um, so maybe some of, uh, some of the future ships uh, will uh, again be at least partly sailing ships. Well, that, that sounds great. I have to say, when you started off with the challenge and when we were talking about the stats in relation to this, I did think, goodness me. Um, but there are some clearly very positive developments and lots of things that can be done. Um, it, are there any um, any things that are going on in the maritime sector that you think other transport sectors can learn from, from a decarbonisation perspective? I'm sure that uh, that there will be uh definitely some synergies that can be shared um unfortunately um it seems that the communication between uh the the different types of transportation modes is maybe not the best uh road transportation and shipping really does not have a lot in common uh so i'm sure that uh, some more work uh to try to learn from each other will be very well received. And uh, I'm sure that uh, just as uh, other transportation methods can learn from shipping, uh, we can certainly learn from them. Great. Okay, so um, wrapping up now with uh, your view on um, this sector and net zero, do you think shipping can make a significant contribution then to achieving net zero by 2050? I do. As uh, as you mentioned uh, in the beginning, it's uh, it's almost a thousand uh, million tons of uh, of uh, CO2 emissions coming from the shipping industry, which is uh, quite a lot. And uh, if we can reduce this uh, dramatically, it will have an impact. Um, so uh, just as with generally, um, the approach to the energy transition is that you need to do everything you can, not just choose you know, one or two or three of the various methods available to you. Uh, shipping will have to do its part, uh, and I'm sure that the shipping industry will rise to this challenge. That's good to hear. So the final question we like to ask all our guest speakers um, is, are you hopeful for the future, Ragnar? Oh, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, definitely. Uh, by nature, I guess, and by training, I am an engineer. And I think that um, technology will certainly have its its uh, its place in the transition, uh, together with uh, many other aspects, uh, a behavioural uh, policy we've touched upon. Uh, but technology is certainly going to to help. Um, and as an engineer, I'm a great believer in in technology. Great. Thank you so much for your fascinating insights, Ragnar. Um, I have learned a huge amount um, today in our session. I think we often focus too much on the renewables and electricity, and uh, that's definitely the case with me. I spent most of my career looking at electricity and renewables. It's really good to understand the part your sector has to play in the energy transition. Okay. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to to join you and uh, and try to give some insights into what the maritime sector can can contribute uh, in the very important uh, energy transition ahead of us.
Thank you. And that just leaves me to say um, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the series at dlapiper.com forward slash ENR or via your usual podcast platform. Mm -hmm.